welcome our KFUO listening audience who join us today. We are looking at the scripture lessons appointed for next Sunday. So, uh, we're going to start with Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. Now, this passage from Ezekiel is a very messianic passage. It depicts how God is going to keep his promise to the line of David. He promised David that one of his line would reign on the throne forever. This passage is, is not quoted a lot. When we talk about the passages in the Old Testament that prophesy the Messiah, this one gets left out, but it's very important, and as we look at it, you'll see that it's pretty clear in what God is trying to tell us. So, thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. All right, so the reference to cedar is very important because the palace of David, as well as the temple that Solomon would build, they were built from the cedars of Lebanon. And so the choice of a cedar here is telling us this points to David. Okay? This points to David. Notice that God does the choosing of the twig. No one else. And notice that it is from the lofty top of the cedar, topmost of its young twigs, okay? What's being said here is that God himself chooses the tender shoot from the line of David. He plants it on a high and lofty mountain. So you begin to imagine all the mountains that are in the scriptures. Which one is it? Well, we don't know. Probably the best case can be made for Calvary. Because that's where it all came to fruition. Or other mountains. Jerusalem is spoken of as being on a mountain. We don't know which one, but we're told that God is doing the choosing, and it will be high and exalted. And then in 23, on the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. Okay. So what's being said here is going to be better than all the rest. Okay? It's going to be better than all the rest. All the cedars of Lebanon, 
this is going to be a better one. And of course, he's referring to the one who came from the line of David, Jesus Christ. This is what's being talked about here. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest there. This is exactly why this passage was chosen as the Old Testament lesson to go with the gospel lesson. Hear the words of the gospel now. We're going to do this different this week. We're going to look at the Old Testament and the gospel together. Okay? It is like a grain of mustard seed. Okay? Kingdom of God is like a grain of mustard seed. Okay? Which, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. In the Old Testament, birds of all sorts were used, that imagery was used to describe people from all nations. Notice it emphasizes every sort. People of all nations. That would include the Gentiles. So the Old Testament tells us that God is going to choose a twig off the top of this cedar, plant it, and it's going to become huge so that birds of every kind nest in its branches. And then we go and we read the gospel. And it's about a mustard seed, which is the smallest of seeds most insignificant, and it grows huge branches for the birds of every sort, every kind. So what Ezekiel is saying is David's line is going to continue and it's going to grow and it's going to ultimately include people of every nation. And then we come along and Jesus talks about the mustard seed growing into a tree that's going to have huge branches and birds of all kinds are going to nest in it, people from all nations. So what's being said here is simply these two passages together are saying the Messiah is going to come of God's choosing from the line of David and his kingdom is going to grow so large that it's going to include people from every nation, including the Gentiles. 
So that is why this Old Testament lesson is read with this gospel lesson. Now, we all thought that the emphasis on the, um, the mustard seed is God's going to take something small and make it great. But the real emphasis is that the birds of every sort are going to nest in its branches. The gospel is going to be spread to all nations. There are going to be people that believe and become a part of the kingdom of God and nest in the branches, all from a twig, all from something insignificant like a mustard seed. We wouldn't think it would work that way, but God makes it work that way. But we're not done yet. 24, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. What we have here is what's called in the scriptures the great reversal God always does things the unexpected way. So, he makes the high tree low and the low tree high, and the green tree dry and the dry tree green. Now, as soon as we read that passage, we think of this passage in Luke. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Luke 23. Well, how can we look at that passage? A couple of ways. First, if God permits this to happen to one who is innocent, what will be the fate of the guilty? In other words, if he's going to allow his own son who is innocent to be nailed to a cross, What's going to happen to people that are truly guilty of sin? That's one way to look at it. Another way to look at it is, if Jews treat this one the way they did when he came to save them, what will happen to them for destroying him? I mean, there's lots of ways to look at this passage. We don't know exactly which one is correct. But the fact is, it is an example of the great reversal. God takes something in this world that we think nothing of and makes something great out of it. So we also think of the, uh, the stump imagery, the dry stump and a shoot comes forth. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1. From the dead stump of David's sinful line comes a live shoot that grows. So there's many ways to look at that. But it's all example of the great reversal, God doing things just the opposite of the way we would expect. So Jesus dies, but we live. He gets punished, we don't. That's all part of the great reversal.
of what God does and how he does it. So Ezekiel here in this passage is making a specific promise about the Messiah. And notice how it closes. I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it. And he did. Just like he said. Always keeps his promises. So, next time you think about uh, passages in the Old Testament that uh, tell us about the coming Christ, don't forget Ezekiel 17, 22 to 24. Okay? Kind of tucked in there. All right, any questions on that one? The question is, um, could the mustard seed represent Israel in growing so large the Gentiles would come in, but at that time Israel was <clears throat> insignificant? Uh, I, I guess you could go that route. Uh, it's certainly pointing to... Uh, Look at Jesus. When Jesus came into the world, nobody was guessing, here's God, and he's going to do these great things. He just looked like a guy. He didn't even glow in the dark. Okay? Just looked like a regular guy. Okay? In fact, Isaiah chapter 52 and 53 kind of imply he wasn't much to look at. All right? And from that... This. Okay. So as you think about the smallness and insignificance of a mustard seed, you might apply that several, several ways. The point is, God made something huge out of it. Other thoughts? Now, while we're on the gospel lesson, we're going to go ahead and finish it because there's another parable here. And that's the first one. It's sometimes called the automatic action of the seed. And he said, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This is trying to describe God's activity of growing the kingdom. Of growing the kingdom. And the first thing that has to be said is, we don't know how he does it. Just like the farmer doesn't know how it truly grows, we don't know how God does it. We don't know how God works in the hearts of people and makes this happen. We can't see it. It's not something we can observe. Not something we can explain. So, basically, this parable is saying we need to accept the method of God's working 
the growth without becoming disillusioned that the growth is unexplainable, gradual, and according to God's will. Sometimes we get impatient with the, the work of God. We wish he'd go faster. Wish he'd go faster. Wish there'd be greater growth, more coming to Christ. We're impatient. The other thing that can be said here is that sometimes we have a difficult time with people in the church because we tend to be judgmental and we're impatient when other people don't act the way they're supposed to, like Christians. Okay? They still th say things they don't, they shouldn't, they, they, they do things that hurt other people. There's all these things and we look at them and say, you know, it's not supposed to be like that. This is the Christian church. But God's the one that handles the growth. Used to be a saying going around, please be patient with me. God is not finished with me yet. So we can become impatient with the growth that goes on, both in the size of the church and in the Christian lives of people. But he does it in his way and in his time. The harvest is the last day. Okay. But this parable reminds us we should not be impatient with the way God works because he's doing it, not us. And he's doing it as his best for his church, his kingdom, and each individual Christian. He takes care of the growth we don't. We watch. And God does the work in the hearts of people. And we can't always explain it. In fact, most of the time, we can't. But it's the work of God. It's the work of God. So these two parables together uh, fit together because both of them are talking about growth. One of them makes clear that God did this through the line of David. And the other makes it clear God does this according to his will in his ways, according to his timing. And we can't explain that. That's beyond us. So those two parables are read with the Old Testament lesson because they match so well. And in the lectionary itself, 
in the lectionary we use, the three-year lectionary, there is always an attempt to have an Old Testament and a gospel that fit together. Sometimes it's hard to see, but there's an attempt to do that. There's an attempt. The second lesson is a continuous lectionary from a book. Like right now, we're in 2 Corinthians. So we read major portions of that book. But the Old Testament and the Gospel, they try to put together. All right. Questions about the Gospel lesson? All right. Then we'll look at the epistle. All right. 2 Corinthians 5, 1 to 17. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Life in this world is described as living in a tent. Okay. Temporary. As compared with a heavenly home that is built by God and is eternal. Now this has a lot of application. What happens to a tent in a storm? Well, we feel that way at times, don't we? When the storms come and the tent is shaking, maybe falls over. That's what Paul is saying. Now it's temporary. This is the way we live. This is the way it is in a sinful world. But God builds us an eternal house, not made with hands, okay? because he does it. For in this tent we groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, okay? In our tent, we groan at times of suffering. Oh, Lord, how long? Okay? Oh, Lord, how long? We long to go to the eternal. Paul said, I desire to depart and be with Christ. Now, I should say, just matter-of-factly, that doesn't mean you take your life into your own hands. There's a lot of that going on these days. A lot of suicide. God decides how long he wants you here. It's kind of back, like back to the parable, the growth is according to God's will. Your life is according to God's will. He makes the decision. We should not take those decisions into our own hands. He knows what is best for you and when to call you from this world. To take matters into your own hand is many times unfortunately due to mental illness and depression but that is not God's will, okay? 
So even though we want to go to heaven, we don't rush the process. Okay? That is up to God. Okay? If indeed by putting it on, we may not be found naked. All right? What is that saying? All right. What it's saying is, even while we were in this tent, in an earthly body, even when that is taken away, we are not naked because we are spiritually alive <coughs> and renewed in Christ. We are with Christ even now and even at death before his second coming. So we're not naked. We're not without anything. Christ is with us and we are with Christ. Okay. We are with Christ. All right, let's go on here. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. We have a guarantee that we are going to be in the hands of Christ, be it in the tent, be it at death, we're going to be with Christ. And the Spirit is the guarantee. It's earnest money. We all know what earnest money is. You have to put down earnest money on a contract to show you're serious about buying a house. The Spirit is the earnest money. God has given us the Spirit to assure us that we have His promises, that we are spiritually alive, and that He's not going to leave us naked and unclothed. We are His. So that is what Paul is saying here. All right. <clears throat> so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Now, what he's saying here is simply this. You don't see him face to face. It doesn't mean God is away from you but you don't see him face to face. He's not implying that God leaves us or is separated from us when we are in this world, but we don't see him face to face. Okay? And then he says, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We don't see him face to face. So therefore, following him, believing his promises, is not an act on our part. It is not an act of sight. We do things based on sight every day. We make decisions based on sight. Okay? But... This life given to us by God is a life of faith 
not seeing him face to face, but believing his promises. So therefore, we walk by faith, not by sight. It also means we do things that the world doesn't understand why we do them. Because we are serving one who reconciled us to himself through the death of Jesus Christ. And they don't understand that. So we do things by faith that the world doesn't understand because they can't see it. They can't see faith in the heart. And they don't understand our thought processes. Why would you do that? Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. There is the statement again. We would rather be with him. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Okay, so why do we live? Our motivation for living now is to thank him for all he did for us by sending his son Jesus Christ and earning for us forgiveness and eternal life. That is our motivation for life. Again, the world doesn't understand that at all. But that's our motivation for life. That's our motivation to keep going. So it's a very different motivation than the world, which may be money or power, furthering your own cause in some way. Ours is to please God. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, don't go nuts here. What's being said here does not deny justification by faith in Christ. But the fact is, for the Christian, for the believer in Christ, all his or her sin is forgiven. They stand before God without sin. Okay? Now, there's going to be judgment. But basically, the question's going to be, how did we respond to God's grace? And how did we use his gifts? Because all your sin is forgiven, the only thing that is left is the good that you did. And that gives glory to God. Now, if you are an unbeliever, when you stand before God, you have nothing good. 
you have not only your sin, but you have no good works because good works are done only by people of faith in Jesus Christ. So you got all your sin and you got nothing but bad. It's not really the place you want to be. But in Christ, you are forgiven and God will bless you for using his gifts of grace to please him. To please him. But he's not going to give you eternal life based on the fact that you reached a certain standard or level of good works. You did, on a scale of 1 to 10, you made a 7. It doesn't work that way. Okay? doesn't work that way. All right, let's go on. Well, let me stop and ask if there are any questions about this. I don't want any misunderstandings here. Yes. Correct. 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 That is correct. All right, verse 11. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it is known also to your conscience. Okay? They, those in Corinth, should know them, that what they're trying to do here is to persuade others to believe. Okay? To persuade others to believe. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. All right. Paul is saying we are trying to preach the gospel and minister and bring it to others. You can boast about us because we do that. But don't get hung up on outward appearances. Look at what's in the heart. What is motivating Paul to do this? The fear of the Lord. Not selfish gain. Not selfish gain. He is trying, he is doing this for the right reasons. And therefore, those in Corinth can boast. Now, you've got to remember that he was having issues with the people in Corinth, and this second letter is defending his ministry. Because there were those in Corinth questioning his ministry, questioning his weakness, questioning his message. Okay. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in our right mind, it is for you. So in other words, 
we may seem nuts for what we're trying to do. But the message, when we speak that message to you, it is the word of God. It is truth. Okay? We will go at any extreme to preach it. We will put ourselves in danger. But it's for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that the one has died for all, therefore all have died. Okay. Now we're into baptism. He died for all. When we are baptized, we die to the old sinful nature. It is drowned and dies. It is killed. So, he died, therefore we died, because we are baptized into mystical union with Christ. And he died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who was for their sake, died, and was raised. Back to motivation for living. He died for all. Therefore, those he died for no longer live for themselves. Motivation. That was the motivation for Paul preaching the gospel. They live for him. Back in the last section, we live to please God. It is our motivation. Okay? That's why we live. That's why we live. So, we don't live for ourselves. Now, that has lots of implications for the Christian life. Because lots of the temptations that we undergo are temptations to do what we want to please ourselves and not what God wants for us to please Him. The choice to go the route of pleasing self is the exact opposite of what Paul's talking about here. And much of the sin we commit, we do because we're trying to do what we want to do. Make a way for us, to, for it to be our way. That's why when we're in a time of suffering, what do we always do? We pray to God that it would stop. That we could avoid it. Yet, God uses the suffering to make us stronger. God using us the suffering to make us stronger. So maybe we need that. 
And he is allowing that so that we get stronger in our faith. And you say, well, he can't do that. I mean, he loves us. He, well, he did it to his own son. Did it to his own son. It says very specifically, he learned through suffering. In this world, so do we. So we are about living to please him, not ourselves. Not ourselves. All right, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. We don't regard anyone according to anything but their life in Christ. Not what we see outwardly, not what we observe, not by sight. We observe them based on their new life in Christ. He in the world once knew Christ only according to the outward, earthly appearance. Back to what we talked about with the mustard seed, small, insignificant, not much. Nobody would believe by outward appearance that this Jesus walking the earth was going to be the kingdom of God. And it was going to grow to such an extent that all nations were going to be a part of it. So, when you look at Christ and only regard him according to the flesh, you miss. You miss it. Now Paul is saying he knows better. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new is come. We are all new creations in Christ, living not for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again for us. Powerful verse. We are new people. World doesn't see it. Sometimes we don't see it in each other, but it is true. Don't be deceived by what you see in the flesh, because God is working in his people to a new thing. The old has passed away, the new has come. So you're a new person. In fact, you're a new person every day. Every day. You are renewed and are brand new every day to begin your life of living for Jesus Christ again. Okay? Past is forgiven. You're new. Okay? You are new. So don't let the world convince you otherwise. And even if your body is wasting away, 
you are still renewed every day. Okay? Every single day. All right. Questions about that lesson? Oh, y'all are quiet today. Yes. Yeah, the, the question is, uh, since only God knows how the growth occurs, when we're witnessing to somebody and hit a brick wall with that person, uh, then maybe go elsewhere? Maybe do something else? Yes? Yes? You know, lots of people have come to Christ years after they were witnessed to. And we get frustrated because we witness to somebody and we want to say, would you believe this? How can you be so stupid not to believe this? And we get frustrated and upset. It's God's growth according to what his timing is. So, you know, we used to make evangelism calls and, and every once in a while somebody had come to church. And, uh, nobody remembered them and... Well, what brought you? Well, some callers came from this church two years ago. And last month, I really started thinking about what they said. That's God's timing in His way. Okay? And we're not in control of that. That's above our pay grade. All we're supposed to do is tell. Tell and pray, God takes care of the growth. Other things. Boy, you're awfully quiet. Not a thing. All right, then we will stop. We will stop. I'm sure church is out. It was out in 45 minutes in the first service. Anything else? Okay, remember, next Sunday we've got the ordination of Aaron Sterling at the late service. It will be an 11 o'clock start, so we can get that all organized. Uh, there will be service in here. There will still be Living Stone next Sunday. But the ordination is at 11 o'clock. He is the son of the congregation, the son of Dan Sterling, our seventh grade teacher. I had Aaron in confirmation and assigned him his confirmation verse, and he wants me to preach on that confirmation verse. So, uh, I'm not going to tell you what it is. You've got to come. So, that's next Sunday at 11. All right. Let's close. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.